Since 1857, when the citizens of Ninager decided to organize a baseball club, the people of Minnesota have been crazy for the sport. In its heyday in the 1950s, the state boasted 799 townball teams. Today, Minnesota can claim more than 300 amateur teams, the most of any state in the U.S. Across nearly 160 years of organized play, Townball has spawned countless memorable characters and stories, and we aim to meet those characters and hear their stories. This is Townball Talk. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Townball Talk, featuring Pat Schneider and Bertie Geislinger, and sponsored by Stony Creek Dairy. I'm your host, Louis Opatz. The Minnesota Amateur Baseball Hall of Fame's Class of 2015 featured five town ball stalwarts. Elko's Terry Fredrickson, Harding's Paul Fronkak, Sobieski's Butch Hennis, St. Joe's Pat Schneider, and Eden Valley's Bob Bertie Geislinger. This week's episode features conversations with two of those members, Pat Schneider and Bertie Geislinger, on their lengthy playing and coaching careers and what the Hall of Fame induction meant to each of them. We spoke before regional play began, and since those conversations, St. Joseph qualified for the Class C state tournament, while Eden Valley was eliminated. Yeah, so I'm here with Pat Schneider. Thanks a lot, Pat, for taking time to chat. My pleasure. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Um, So I guess my first question is just uh, curious where you're from and, and how you first got involved with or your first memories of town ball baseball. Well... I'm from St. Joseph. I grew up uh, on a on a lake. Uh, uh, to, then we moved into town uh, from Kramer Lake uh, when I was about six years old. Parents built a house, which, unbeknownst to me, ended up uh, being built on top of home plate of the original baseball field in St. Joe, which I didn't know about until <laughs> I was a little older. So I think there's some uh, magic going on from that. <laughs> as far as my love for baseball. So, yeah, been around a long time. I think I only missed two years when I when I went to Alaska. and I was 19 years old. I went up there for a couple of years just to uh, get away. Yeah. Other than that, I've been involved in amateur baseball since uh, maybe 16 years old, so, you know, 40 years or so, 45. And that's the entirety of that has been with St. Joe's? St. Joseph, right. Okay. What's the history of the team in St. Joe as far as you know? Well, we had our 75th anniversary for St. Joe Baseball in 1990. And uh, so add another 16 years on to that. So, you know, we're into close to... 26, 1990s? Yeah. So, you know, add that on. So we're getting close to our 100-year anniversary Mm -hmm. as far as amateur baseball in St. Joseph. Used to be the Saints... Mm-hmm. And the Joes, they played in the uh, Great Sioux League back in the day, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. We do have a <clears throat> 1926 picture of the team at Town Ball Tavern, outside Town Ball Tavern at yeah. Target Field. My grandpa's on the photo as far as one of the players and so on. So it's pretty cool. Um, so you mentioned uh, your grandpa being being on the team. Do you have memories as a child of, of going to St. Joe games? I do. Uh, obviously, my grandpa was gone by the time I was old enough to to see him play. Uh, but I had uh, several uncles play baseball, uh, and those are the they were the older brother type images for me, and that's kind of got, what got me going. They played college baseball, St. Louis State, University of Minnesota, and it was the old Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris era mm-hmm. <laughs> when those guys were playing. So it was. Uh, very cool time in in my in anyone's life to grow up watching, you know, the Yankees and, and of course the Twins came along shortly uh, in the '60s and yeah. that took a while for all of us to get acclimated to that and uh, you know and of course then Rod Carew and all those uh, figures came about uh, in our early years and just became uh, the best thing in 
in town is going to amateur baseball games, parking my grandmother's car before the game uh, <clears throat> while she was in church. And, uh, and, of course, a lot of cars parked and the horns blowing all the time during ball games, which you don't see that anymore. Mm-hmm. So what was uh, – when did you actually join the team? Were you in high school? Still? Yeah, I was 16. Uh, I was, uh, I believe, a sophomore at Cathedral High School. Mm-hmm. Um, played my junior year at the Rock Stadium. We won the state tournament. Uh, high school uh, PAA – or. Parochial, yeah, the, the Catholic, uh, Catholic yeah. Uh, state tournament at the Rock Stadium. Hmm. Yeah, so did some bat. I, at an earlier age, uh, spent a lot of time at the Rocks as a bat boy for Cathedral's teams mm-hmm. with my uncles on them. Mm-hmm. Tom Bergmeier and my yeah. uncles Jerry Funnestein and oh, okay, well, so they you know those are great memories as a youngster and then embedded into your brain that you're going to play there. Yeah, as you get older, kind of deal. Well, so one thing that I've always found interesting about St. Joe in particular is its relationship to, to St. Cloud. And it sounds like, you know, you played a lot of ball in St. Cloud and had those connections there. Um, but, you know, you're playing just outside of St. Cloud. It's, it's a lot smaller. Um, in some ways, maybe you're kind of uh, looking for the same players or, you know, you overlap a little bit with the western part of the, of the city. What was it like... Um, playing ball in St. Cloud, but then coming back to the small town of St. Joseph and playing for the Saints or well, the Joes then, I'm not sure. But <clears throat> I think every coach that ever had a kid that came from St. Joe and wanted to play baseball, they knew they had a a, a kid that was going to work hard and play hard and do his best and mm-hmm. be dedicated. And, uh, yeah, it was always a challenge, you know, uh, moving, going to high school in St. Cloud, although Cathedral was – wasn't maybe as bad as it could have been uh, uh, since especially the fact that I was in sports but you know when you're an outsider it seemed like coming into St. Cloud it was a challenge mm-hmm. as a freshman in high school but you know baseball uh, in St. Cloud we developed it the guys we developed a lot of respect and some of the guys actually came to St. Joe to play baseball because of that Mm-hmm. We don't have a high school, which is yeah. a disadvantage for us. Mm-hmm. So we do end up getting players from various areas and schools. Um, so it makes it more of a challenge. But, you know, if you get the right person, you get three or four along with that person, and that's how you develop a core group. Yeah, and what do you think attracts people to a place like St. Joe? Um, I know having played in St. Cloud and now having played – um, in a smaller town, that there are obviously differences in that. What do you think yeah. is appealing to folks about maybe a little smaller town or a little small town atmosphere? Well, I think for one thing, um, guys that play for St. Joe enjoy picking up a rake and helping out mm-hmm. yeah. and being able to hang out at the ballpark afterwards with a yeah. case of beer, just relax and talk baseball yep. till dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, just what you can do, you can practice on your field. That's something that you know we have the advantage over, say, a bigger town where maybe you don't have that ability to just take ownership of the field and improve it, do whatever you want with it, yeah, uh, to make it uh, to improve the field. Mm-hmm. So that that part is an advantage and draws a lot of people. Yeah, they're way. not trying to hustle you off to get the next game going. Or, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you started playing. Um, in high school, what was the transition like for you to start managing? Was that something you did while you played, or was it not till you were done playing, or how did you become involved with that? Well, I played under several different managers, and um, when I came back from my two years in Alaska, I had some more leadership skills and were a little more mature and became a player manager. Mm-hmm. Which was not easy. Yeah. Um, but we had a, a great core group that we shared responsibilities, and that part was good. So, um, playing man, playing and managing is um, sounds good, but it uh, <laughs> takes your mind off the game when you're trying to play, especially yeah. if you have ball players that need to get in the game, situations, decisions that need to be made, mm-hmm. and you're playing shortstop 
for example, and it just doesn't work mentally. <laughs> yeah, you're almost focusing more on, is that guy on the bench going to be happy if X, exactly. Y, or Z happens instead right. of... Or, you know. or you're thinking back on something you did wrong mm-hmm. or could have done better as a manager and the ball's hit to you to you, and you're not thinking yeah. properly. So yeah. that that is not a good situation. So Yeah, that's true. You... You're not only getting second guess for any decisions you make, but then if you like make an error or you strike out or something, then that just goes on top of that. You're second exactly guessing. right. Yeah. yeah. So that didn't last. It lasted until I I quit playing when I was 42. Um, so I was basically a player manager for quite a while, but but uh, it was much much more comfortable and we were more successful once I was able to focus on. Coaching third base, making out the lineup, all those other things. The list is two pages long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Not to mention, like you said, the field. And the, uh, everything. Yeah. You know, in, in talking about the level of uh, work that goes into it and the responsibilities and everything, um, and being the one to, to call, is this is this all just sort of added up one by one? Like when you when you started out, if I had said, "Hey, uh, Pat," you know. 50 odd years or however long it's been from now, you're going to, you're going to be overseeing kind of this entire thing. Was that, uh, would that have been a shock to you as a, as a high schooler or as a starting out amateur player? Did you always sort of have St. Joe baseball in your, well, I did have, yeah, I always had a little bit of leadership in in me and I wanted to be responsible and to be in charge. Mm -hmm. Um, I like that. I've, I've been involved in service organizations, been the president Vice President. Uh, in fact, our concession stand was built by our local Lions Club, and at that time, I became president and indicated to the members that I have a, a vested interest in baseball. I'm just yeah. war- warning you ahead of time. <laughs> and uh, within that year, we had the building put up. Wow. So, um, but I, yeah, I, I enjoyed taking on responsibilities and and having some leadership. Although I had some really good guidance from uh, my mother, who used to be our our secretary treasurer for our team, she passed away last October. Um, but she was always a good person to uh, help me out with the past and the history of baseball mm-hmm. and the direction we were we were going. She yeah. would always she she was wise. Sometimes she uh, would ask me even uh, why did you send that runner <laughs> on the bottom <laughs> of the ninth. Was that a hit and run? <laughs> um, but uh, so she was a she was the guiding force for me and my inspiration too to continue because of her her love for baseball and and as well as the rest of my family. Yeah. So what was her name? Gladys Schneider. Gladys. Yeah. A lot of umpires knew her. Yeah. Uh, I think you probably remember her yeah. a little bit too. Yeah. I know she uh, she was grandma to all of our ball players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something you hear over and over when you talk to people from all parts of the state and all teams is just the importance of the the greater community of fans and supporters and just how important those people are to making the experience what it is when you show up at the park and you see the same folks, you know, in their lawn chairs or like you said honking their horns or even even second guessing why you, you know, why you tried to steal or whatever it was, just Correct. having those people who care that much is so yeah. Vital to the whole operation. No, that's that's very true. Yeah. You mentioned the the college community and I've always been curious about about how that works with your team in particular just because I know that well, I, I guess I don't know the entirety of it, but <clears throat> that you guys were you guys have been moved around leagues. Um there's been Certain years where you guys seem to have a lot of kids from St. John's, certain years or certain spans, eras when that isn't the case as much. Um, and you mentioned not having that kind of high school to count on. Um, what's it like having the, it seems like it could be a blessing and a curse to sort of have that pool of potential college players because I know that their college players coming in is something that the state board keeps an eye on or that's at least a consideration when these sorts of things are figured out. Um, yeah, and and you've had some great players come out of you know we, Luke Schumer and yeah Alec Roll I remember uh, him. oh yes. yeah yeah you had some 
some really good players. And some of those guys ended up sticking around for a very long time. Like, what's that relationship like having that, that pool of players there, but also not knowing for sure who you can count on year in, year out? Or I don't know, what's that relationship yeah, like? It's interesting you bring that up. Um, ever since the state board chose to um, not allow college players to play um, anywhere but their hometown in Class C. Mm-hmm. That has affected us quite a bit, and uh, we've not been able to get players who would go to college and they would love to 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 stay here in St. Joe, get a summer job, which is not that difficult to do, mm-hmm. and play baseball. But instead, they have to go home or play Class B, which you know that would be an option for us. But then, if we played Class B, then we're not going to be able to use a lot of ball players that we typically get C ball players that typically want to play. Yeah. That's just not going to work. If you're going to play class B, then you have to play class B and go at finding ball players. I don't care where they're from mm-hmm. anywhere. Um, the problem with the college ball players playing here in St. Joe is the fact that they may not be back the following year. Yeah. There's nothing keeping them here, so they play for a year and then they're gone. Or they play for two years and then they're gone. Mm-hmm. Um, what a wonderful relationship. We've had NASA, Bahamas, ball players that went to St. John's. Yeah. We've had um, people from, like you say, all, all, over the, all over the place that went to college. But again, they didn't stay long. Mm-hmm. So in retrospect, helped us for a year or two, but that was it. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, amateur baseball is is uh, challenged by the longevity of players. Seeing people play into their 30s is kind of getting to be a lost art. Yeah. Um, and it, it's sad to mm-hmm. see people quit uh, too soon. But I understand because of today's economy and today's lifestyles um, and finding jobs. Got to yeah. go where the, where the jobs are. So, Yeah, that seems to be a real kind of that the cloud hanging over a lot of different leagues is just the, man, we're losing a lot of 27, 28-year-olds or even younger maybe who are moving to the cities or to, right. and uh, yeah, it's, I know that in the Stearns County League, there's, you know, they've been slowly kind of loosening the adding some exceptions with the radius. It, it's not that hard and fast six for everyone anymore. And I think there are, it's scary for sort of this, yeah, this, this cloud hanging over everything, wondering whether um, teams are going to start folding or, you know, I, I think even just the amount of guys on teams is dropping every year. And um, right. I'm sure you run into whether you're going to have, have the numbers for a certain game, you know, every few weeks or how, Oh, this go. year was pretty good, but yeah. in the past, in the past few years, has been a real, real challenge. Yes, yeah. but what I, what I, I get a kick out of, and we had practice last night, is I have a couple of nineteen-year-olds that are very good ball players, but they are struggling hitting the ball right now. And you know, we can go through all kinds of things to help them out and temporarily make it work, and then you know how that goes, Louis. Something mm-hmm. else comes up and then you get into a funk again and yeah, yeah. now you have to come up with another solution to that but yeah. uh, you know my thing is you don't learn the game of baseball until you've matured and in my opinion uh, it changes based on the person but i think if you, the 30 year old person is the person who's matured and they start to learn the game mm-hmm. not until you've hit those late 20s into your 30s yeah if you can manage to play that long mm-hmm. um you really do understand the strike zone when you're a batter. You understand situations as a as a fielder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know how to handle yourself on the field. Yeah, when to be prepared, how to prepare for games, all those kind of things. Yeah, are, are I see that in a seasoned player. So if players stick it out and and let's say they're average ball players as a 19 or 20 year old, they will get better. Yeah. Imagine be, being able to play 162 games a year. Yeah, uh, you would get better. That's so, like yeah, that's like seven or eight amateur seasons. Right there. Exactly. Yeah. So it does it does make a difference in the long run if people do stick stick with the game. Mm-hmm. An average ball player will be a better ball player by the time they're 30. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, we have the disadvantage, of course, with the short season. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not being able to play college ball so you're not throwing in January or February. Yeah. But if uh, but if you, you get out of practice what you put into it, if you work hard at the game, uh, over time people will become good hitters. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, learning more as you go on. Um, what, you know, after 30, after you maybe in your 40s and then once you, when you stopped playing and went, went to straight to managing – do you feel like you're still learning things every week out there on the field? That's that's a constant learning experience. In fact, you get lessons after the experience mm-hmm. all the time. And, you know, we can talk about in pregame situations to prepare for. But, again, uh, as as a player, you don't – it doesn't sink in until you have the experience. Yeah. And then don't let it happen twice. Because <laughs> <laughs> then you'll hear from your manager. <laughs> well, it's just one of those things that people have to put it in the bank. Mm-hmm. And remember, and the more you experiences you have, you know, and I know a lot of these guys have played Little League ball as well. So they've experienced some of that. But unfortunately, sometimes sloppy play doesn't help them. So maybe, you know, not a, maybe not the best coaching in, in Little League or whatever it might have been. Um, but... Uh, the more you experience challenges on a baseball field, the more you understand the game. But I, even as an umpire, I'm questioning situations, um, and it's not all in the rule book. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I, you know, I just think that that uh, that's the beauty of the game mm-hmm. is because there's every game is different, and and you do get another ball game. So you learn how to win, you learn how to lose, and move on. Um, but the relationships are the most important, in my opinion. And, and then being a mentor right now is just the most beautiful thing ever, being able to uh, help people when they ask. I usually try not to give advice unless I, they ask for it. This is not high school, it's not college, it's amateur ball. So go play, have fun. Mm-hmm. If you need help, ask me. I'll tell you. If you want me to watch you bat and see if I see something wrong, I will do that. Otherwise, I'm going to stay out of your hair, out of your uh, your head, and I'm going to let you play the game. You know, and I won't yell at you. We'll talk side by side, maybe alone if we need to. Otherwise, uh, just have fun. Yeah, yeah. What are uh, what uh, what has been the common ingredient among the better teams you've had or or you mentioned having fun the more fun teams you've had is there something that you know when july comes around and you can go okay we this is a good this is a good group of guys is there something that that you look for or something that you notice as being a common ingredient in those really fun and talented teams you've had uh, i think the common ingredient uh, uh to have a successful team you have players that stick around after the ball game and talk baseball. Mm-hmm. Players that pick up their glove and their duffel bag and and leave as soon as the game is over, that's not what you're looking for in a, in a successful team. You need to have guys that are willing to hang out together. Uh, obviously, people have to work. They've got family commitments. That's different. But... Um, if I see people in the dugout after a ball game hanging out, uh, to me that's a good sign and a great ingredient for a successful team talking baseball. Yeah, and I mean that's where that's where you end up hammering out a lot of your issues where yes. you know, maybe you say, Hey, what was the deal when you didn't hit the cutoff or why did you you know, whatever, why were you giving me a dirty look after X, exactly. Y, Z, and then I, you, you get you get into it and then you get over it and you're you're done right. with it. Yeah. Right. And and to to piggyback off of that idea is to also spend time after the game with the other team. Mm-hmm. And if that, to me, would be the most beautiful thing ever if amateur baseball teams would have a post-game, I don't know, post-game visit, to hang out, talk, get to know each other a little bit. Yeah. It doesn't have to be long. Mm-hmm. But we're all in it together. Yeah. Might as well. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you're here. Yeah. Well, and I wonder if, especially you guys have 
now joined a, a new league. I wonder if that's been an interesting transition to, you know, you were in the Lakewood for so long and you get used to the same kind of guys and the same teams. And then, um, I mean, there's, a, I guess, a little commonality with Sartell still being there and everything, but you guys are now playing these new teams every week and um, some of whom, like Foley, weren't, right. didn't exist and maybe are a lot of a lot younger. Um, what's that transition been like going into... Um, a new league and kind of learning new faces and new teams? Yeah, I don't know. It hasn't been too difficult. Um, you know, like I say, with Sartell, they're local. A lot of the guys know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, Litchfield, you know, we're far removed from them socially because they live so far away, 45 minutes away. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a long distance. And to me, I don't understand why the Sock Valley League can't have local teams. Why do we have to travel 45 miles to get to a ball game mm-hmm. on a, uh, for a league? But, uh, you know, I don't mind having Litchfield in the league. I think they've, they've been great for us because they're, they're a challenging team. And Rube does a wonderful job out there. Um, however, when you look around and you see the Avons and the St. Stevens and the Holding Fords, which is our original Sock Valley League, and the yeah. Cold Springs, and, you know, we had parity back in the day. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there isn't parity once we get to get the class B teams. Yeah. So those are the things that make it difficult when you'd love to play, you know, the St. Cloud teams and the yep. Cold Springs and so on. But, uh, you'd also want players want to be successful too mm-hmm. and not take a beating every Sunday. Yeah. You have to strike that balance. Correct. Between, yeah. Yeah. So, that's the way it goes. I mean, hopefully the Sock Valley League you know, I, was kind of my idea to bring back the Sock Valley League when we were in the Lakewood because the state board was pushing us to go Class B, and I knew we weren't a Class B team, mm-hmm. particularly because we didn't have a high school. And so I said, you know, let's let's get this going. And I was hoping maybe we could lure some other programs into, into our Class C program, but... Um, so far, that has not happened. But the Sock Valley League is right now very respected. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll see what happens here in the regions coming up. Yeah. With uh, Foley's very good team. Mike Byers done a marvelous job with that program over there. And, of course, Sartell um, is, uh, in my opinion, one of the best Class C teams in the state um, and can play with anyone. Yeah. including Nisswa and, and those other teams that are uh, up on top. Mm-hmm. So I don't mind playing them. I think it's great. Uh, makes us better. Yeah. Um, so you were uh, part of the 2015 Hall of Fame class uh, for the Minnesota Amateur Baseball Hall of Fame. Yes. What was that experience like? Maybe you can walk me through kind of how you found out or what – what that whole what that feeling was like when you when you learned of all that? We um, last year, every year we've had an alumni baseball game where we bring back um, St. Joe baseball players from every pretty much every era, some eighty year olds, seventy year olds, sixty hmm. year olds. And I found out last year during our event that I was accepted into the uh, Hall of Fame as one of the inductees. And it was pretty emotional um, for me. My brother, uh, younger brother, Bud Schneider, was instrumental in getting that started with Bob Karn. Mm -hmm. And um, he, my brother, uh, was able to get quite a few testimonials. Uh, I've read through them, and I learned things I did not know uh, from players who played with me in the past and how they... The reason why they 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 encouraged me to get in was pretty pretty interesting. I just didn't you don't know what an impact you have on other players until you read things like they they told me. It was pretty mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. So yeah, it was bittersweet too in the sense that my mother had passed uh, maybe a month before that. So oh, wow. that was tough. Yeah. But uh, she was there. We were pretty excited about uh, the whole event. Was great. Mm-hmm. So, and then I had several 
30 or 40 family members attend so that wow. made it made it pretty cool yeah and then we had an extended party at the green mill after mm -hmm. and uh it was a long night yeah. <laughs> in a good way yeah. in a good way yeah that's good <laughs> um what's it like to be uh to be a hall of famer and still be active you know i mean not I don't think being part of the Hall of Fame means, you know, you're done, you know, thanks for all your work, you know, exactly. but it's, uh, I don't know, it's got to be rewarding, and then I'm guessing soon after you said, all right, what what, what do I have to do for the field, what do I have to do for the team, what do I, what do I have well, next on my docket? But. That, that's a good question. I, I um, granted, I've had a lot of years in amateur baseball, I get that, playing and managing and so on, but I still think that my... Pride and joy is the baseball camp for the kids. Mm -hmm. uh, this was our 26th year this year for wow. campers, and if you multiply that times 40 to 50 kids per year, that's a sizable amount of children that have gone through the program, which is always instructional, which I always had a strong feeling. Talking to Mr. Karn and Mr. Frerichs all over the years, we all agreed that, that instruction is not something that... Uh, we focus enough on for kids, uh, especially uh, drills, repetition. Yes, they get bored, but they learn the fundamentals yeah. over and over and over. The more they did proper fielding drills, the more they do proper swinging and hitting drills. And I've seen it all. I mean, I, when kids come to the camp, they used to come to the camp with a high leg kick from Kirby. <laughs> uh, they would come to the camp with uh, just uh, things they emulate from people they see on TV. Mm -hmm. And now uh, the instruction, people, the parents really appreciate that instruction because I think a lot of Little League games the kids go to or play in, uh, they spend a lot of time standing around. Yeah. Sometimes, uh, um, you know, they don't get enough instruction. Uh, maybe the instructors or the coaches or parents who maybe don't have the background, you mm -hmm. know, all of that. So this is an opportunity with our camp to get, and I, so I take a lot of pride in the fact that the kids get uh, told the right way to do things. Yeah. And if they walk away with one of our ideas and stick with it, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. And we have fun Yeah. <laughs> to, to mix with that. Um, yeah. So the, the camp, I think, is is my inspiration to continue, and that's, I think, why I um, should have been in the Hall of Fame, mainly for the kids, mm -hmm. and to, uh, you know, pass on, pass on some of those um, same feelings I have about the game to those children. You can see it in their eyes. It's pretty cool. Yeah. What is, yeah. Um, just to, to end, to sum up, what is... If you could kind of summarize what that feeling is or what at the heart of it brings you back to baseball, what you try to communicate to those kids, what is it that you love about the game and, and uh, that, that you'd love them to, to, to pass on to them? Well, you know, we talk a lot about gripping a baseball, hanging on to it, how to grab the seams. You know, we talk about two-seam, four-seam, mm -hmm. you know, curveballs, this and that, not that they should be throwing breaking balls at that age, but <laughs> I uh, mentioned at the, the Hall of Fame, and I still believe this, that the baseball had the grip on me yeah, <laughs> instead of me gripping the ball. So Jim Bouton, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, uh, that, that's uh, something that doesn't go away, you know, when you feel like your heart's shaped like a baseball. It's just uh, one of those things. I love a lot of other things besides that. I mean, obviously my family first <laughs> and, and all that. But uh, if you talk to my wife, she would just shake her head and said, you know, if he goes on the baseball field, he'll be happy. Mm -hmm. So now, it's a, and now, now that I have a grandson um, and Brody's eight, and so he's, we play catch every time he comes over. And that's, that's what it's all about, the kids. So. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Pat. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, I appreciate you talking. I appreciate to you coming, Louis. Yeah, take All care. Right. Thank you for listening to part one of Town Ball Talk. 
Coming up, my conversation with Eden Valley's Bertie Geislinger. But first, a word from this week's sponsor, Stony Creek Dairy. Dating back to the late 1800s, five generations of the Shaneberg family have farmed the land located near Melrose in central Minnesota. Stony Creek's cows are cared for with a special program of high omega-3 feed that produces high-quality, personally crafted milk that is superior in the market. Stony Creek prides itself on products that are produced without the use of any hormones and their vat pasteurization method, which gives the milk a unique, natural, full-bodied flavor. Check out Stony Creek's family of hormone-free products, including skim, 1%, 2% whole and Swiss chocolate milk, heavy cream and slow churn butter at stores across Minnesota. Visit stonycreekdairy.com or like Stony Creek Dairy on Facebook for more information. And now, part two of Town Ball Talk. Um, I'm with uh, here with Bob Bertie Geislinger. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me, Mr. G. Not a problem. Glad to do it, Louis. Yeah. Um, so we are sitting actually here at the Eden Valley baseball field in Eden Valley, um, where you are the manager and have been for some time of the Eden Valley Hawks amateur team. Right. Uh, since uh, 1977. Wow. I've been skipper over here. Yeah. So it's been working out very well for us. And right now we're in the midst of regional play. So. Yeah. Well, and good luck to you guys on that. Um, right. I guess I'm curious what your... Uh, origins are with not only Eden Valley, but just how you got started playing baseball, where you grew up, that kind of thing. Okay, Louie, I grew up in a baseball family. Uh, my mom and dad were very supportive uh, of us, and I grew up with also five brothers. We were on a huge farm, but dad made sure that every day after chores, we played ball in our big yard that we had at the farm. He was the pitcher, and uh, we would uh, have sides with the brothers and sometimes I got my sister involved and mother she would be the umpire she'd sit on the step to keep all of us guys in line so that got me started and then when I was in the eighth grade we had a pasture that was kind of formed like a baseball park so I put together a pasture team of local guys to uh, play on Sunday afternoons and what we would do is uh, we're a very religious family and mom and dad would make us go to church at six o'clock in the morning, Sunday morning. And then I would you come said home. said six o'clock? Six o'clock in the morning we had mass, yes. So we'd go to mass at six o'clock in the morning, and then we'd come home, we'd have breakfast, do chores, and there's down to the ballpark. I'd be down there cutting the grass for foul lines, uh, removing any uh, cow pies that were there, and then I would uh, chalk the infield with ground feed that I took wow. from the granary, and I would use uh, baler twine as a, as a line to follow, mm -hmm. and uh, Dad was very good for me. He uh, put a mound for me. He took our tractor with a, with a uh, bucket on it and dumped a little black dirt about 60 feet, six inches away from home plate. Uh, he made home plate out of wood and a pitcher of rubber out of wood, and uh, he got a couple of telephone poles for me and some hog wire. We had a backstop. And on Sunday afternoons, we had three teams that played round robin, and we played ball all Sunday afternoon. All Sunday afternoon, and uh, we had a team from uh, north of Watkins, a team from Eden Valley, and then my farm team. That was in eighth and ninth grade, and uh, what, I was year, what year would that have been? That would have been in 1963. Wow. Yes, and I was the pitcher. Uh, my best friend uh, was the catcher, and we had uh, eight solid players. But sometimes I'd get my younger sister involved to play right field for us. <laughs> and the embarrassing thing about that is she's the fastest one of the bunch. <laughs> and the kids all came over because they came over on uh, pickup trucks. Nobody had a license, but uh, every farm had a uh, wood hauler, old truck. And if they didn't have an old truck, they came with their tractors. And uh, there we were. So that's how I got started. So none of you... None of you played town ball. This was all just, this was how you played on? That, no, that's how I got started before town ball. Mm -hmm. Then I had three brothers playing for Watkins. And when I was a uh, sophomore in high school, I was 1965, three important events happened for me. First of all, 1965 was a good year for the Minnesota Twins. Mm -hmm. It was also a good year for Bob Bertie Geislinger <laughs> because that's the first year I uh, played town team ball. Uh-huh. It was the first year the high school coach told me I'd made varsity as a sophomore. Uh -huh. And then I met this really good-looking cheerleader in biology <laughs> class who uh, we've been married now for uh, 44 years. Wow. Yes. That was a good so, year. Yes. 
Um, so how did you go from, because correct me if I'm wrong, but you the, you said your, your first year managing Indian Valley was 1977. Was right. that also the first year of the Hawks? Oh, no. No, the Hawks have been around since 1898. Oh, okay. okay. So a little before then. Right, right. <laughs> so I started playing baseball at Watkins, okay, okay. in yep. 1965. But then that team folded in 1977. So then we joined forces oh, over it. here with Eaton Valley. Okay. And it was Eaton Valley Watkins for three years. And then Watkins got a team going again. But then I kind of had my foot in cement over here. Mm -hmm. So I just stuck around over here. Yeah. So that's how that worked out. Well, and I'm, I'm curious about that as, a, as somebody who has ties to Watkins and Eaton Valley. Right. Obviously, for the schools, they are um, together. Right. And so I think a lot of times when people, when you're talking about high school sports, you'll say Eden Valley, and of course you mean Eden Valley Watkins Correct. or whatever. Um, how do you think the two towns distinguish themselves, um, and how does maybe Eden Valley differentiate itself in particular when it comes to amateur baseball? What are the Hawks? Okay, one thing that uh, makes a difference between the two of us, I believe, is that we like to keep a lot of local talent. Uh, right here. I believe amateur baseball was based upon that and that's what we, we kind of go with and uh, we have our own identity over here and uh, as does Watkins and uh, over the years uh, it's glad for me to see that they too now are uh, having more of their local boys playing the game and that's what amateur baseball is all about. Yeah. So, um, so I guess I always knew you as Mr. G. You were my eighth right, grade. Right. I think it was social studies teacher. Oh yes. Um, but everywhere else you are known as Birdie. How did right. you come to get that nickname? <laughs> okay. Uh, back in the day, I played softball, slow pitch softball. As a matter of fact, I played three days a week, and then I was on a tournament team on weekends. However, I told the guys that baseball would always come first, and they understood that. So uh, it was in the fall of the year. I'm in a baseball tournament. Had to be up at Watkins. It was in middle of October, and the geese were starting to migrate. Okay, and uh, I really got a hold of one. And about 12 geese were flying over the park, <laughs> and they're flying pretty low. And wouldn't you know it? I hit one of them, and it came down and it fluttered down, and it just sat between uh, second base and third base, just kind of lay, lay there. <laughs> well, that's the time when the song "Bye Bye Birdie" came out. Uh -huh. So that's it. That's wow. how I got it. Yep. It was a perfect storm yeah. of, of coincidences. Right? Yes, it was. Yes, right. Um, so whatever happened to the field that you made, it sounds like a hell of a lot of work went uh, into it. The, the, my pasture? Yeah. Okay. It's still there. Okay. And uh, in a little while, you're going to see my three grandchildren. Uh -huh. Because every time I drive by at my three grandchildren, we stop. And I point out to them where the field was and who played where and everything. So we, got, we go by now, and they just closed their ears. They said, Grandpa, we've heard it a million times. Don't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> so it's still there, but every time I go by, I just have a nice little uh, great feeling in my heart about that place. Yeah. Oh, we have a lot of good times down there. Well, and I'm just curious. Um, this is something when I spoke with Pat Schneider that he mentioned, and I think is something that is a common refrain you hear about amateur ball um, with the current generation and not that your grandkids, you know, of course they've heard this story a million times, but yeah. not that they're not, um, I'm sure, especially when they get older, will be sort of in awe and, um, of that story. But do you think that there's, uh, do you feel like there's a change afoot as far as kids sticking around and playing ball? And what oh. do you see as happening right now oh, in amateur ball? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you can drive around these fields and you don't see kids on anymore. You don't see kids playing catch anymore. In 2001, uh, I was with the uh, coach of Eden Valley Watkins, and we took our Legion team to the state tournament. And that was at Wilmer. And the guest speaker was Tony Oliva. And Tony Oliva uh, got on stage, and he said he drives around Minnesota. He sees all these beautiful baseball parks. He said the kids in Cuba would kill for that. He said, but there's nobody on them. And he said uh, that really, really hurts him. And I've noticed that too. When my kids grew up, uh, if they weren't having jobs, they were playing ball. Uh, they were playing ball in the backyard with the neighbor kids, or they would bike to town and, and play at a softball or baseball park there. But you just don't see pickup games uh, anymore. And I, I know there's a lot of high school programs right now that 
are kind of suffering from the effect that kids really don't want to go out and play baseball. Uh, and trying to get them to play town team, if they don't want to even play high school ball, uh, can be a challenge at times. So mm -hmm. I know there's a big difference there. And there's a difference with commitment. Uh, in order to be good at amateur ball, it's a commitment you have to make. But trying to get everyone there for practice or exhibition games sometimes, uh, over the years, I found has been a challenge. Mm -hmm. So you clearly were good enough at hitting to, uh, you know, strike a flying goose. But what were you yeah. like as a player in your day? Uh, it, well, I'll just tell you the way it was. Uh, <laughs> playing softball, a buddy and I uh, had a bet that uh, whoever hits the first 100 home runs would buy the other one a, uh, a fifth of uh, schnapps, peppermint schnapps, okay? okay? <laughs> and uh, invariably, every year, I'd hit, I'd hit over 100, uh -huh. okay, with that. Uh, and baseball, uh, I took the batting title. Uh, in 1982, I hit 487. Uh, the big, biggest year I had, I had 16 home runs in one year. Uh, I played on eight all-star teams, and of the eight all-star teams, uh, four of them I bet a clean-up, and I hit, oh, I don't know, five, six home runs in the all-star game. So, mm -hmm. uh, wow. yeah, I, I enjoyed hitting. Yeah. I enjoyed hitting. It was fun. And uh, to me, to see kids struggle hitting now, that's the biggest. Uh, I just understand how you can not hit a baseball. I just <laughs> yeah. understand that. Uh, when I would get on deck, I would look at that pitcher, and I'd, I'd say two things to myself. I'd say, pitcher, you're going to get hit and you're going to get hit damn hard. <laughs> and I love to bat with guys on base. I just yeah. love to do that. So, but, uh, yeah, but, but I played a lot. Yeah. So it made a difference. And I was a lefty. Mm -hmm. So I threw right, but batted left. Yeah. So, yeah. What, uh, what was your favorite part about hitting? Uh, hitting with guys on base. Yeah. I just, I just love that. And uh, I remember we were at Pearl Lake, and... Uh, when we played at Pearl Lake, the Pearl Lake team always go behind their dugout and have a little team meeting before the game. And then there was an old-timer back there listening to that from Pearl Lake. And he came over to me and I said, hey, what are they talking about back there? They said one thing. You stop Birdie, we're going to win this damn game. So I said, oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, so that's got to feel that. good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, Well, and you mentioned uh, having, you said five brothers, correct? Yes. Yeah, and yes. I think uh, you know the the Geislinger name is a pretty common one in in the Eden Valley Watkins right. area. Right. What do you think? Um, what do you think that name means around here? Well, it means baseball. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. Uh, no matter where I go, and I say Geislinger. Oh yeah, the baseball boys from Eden Valley Watkins. I say, mm -hmm. Oh yes, yes. And uh, it's good to see our grandkids of the original brothers carrying on a tradition. I mean, for me to see my grandchild. Uh, oldest one, Tyler, uh, pitched the state tournament uh, finale at Target Field was really something to, uh, to take in. And I got to a little story this here. Uh, got down to Target Field, I'm sitting up on the top level, okay, with uh, two of my sons. And an usher came by and he said, so how are you involved with this? I thought, well, my grandson's gonna be pitching today. Well, you can't see from up here. I said, well, I don't know how I can get down to the field. I do. So he called another usher and he and my wife and, and family got in an elevator and there was a gal there with a badge asking him what they're doing. He says, we're going on the ground, uh, ground level. And that usher said, no, you're not. Yes, we are. We had not, uh, did not have this conversation. And uh, he took us to the, uh, the champion room where they got their World Series uh, trophies. He stopped us there and he opened a glass. I could touch it. Wow. <laughs> and then he got me right next to the dugout. That's right next to the dugout. And every couple of innings, he'd come and ask how I was doing, if I needed anything. I mean, that was just fantastic. So I called Bill Smith at that time. He was the president of operations for the Twins. And of course, I got an answering machine. And I told him who I was, just want to thank him. Well, within hours, I had a call back and said, Minnesota Twins. I thought, what the heck? He called me back personally. And he was very happy that uh, they worked it out for me. So he wanted to know about that gal in the elevator. I thought, oh, that's okay. She was okay with it. So. <laughs> but, wow. Yes. So it's fun seeing that. What is, um, as somebody who grew up playing baseball um, and maybe was cheering for the Eden Valley team before there was a Minnesota Twins, mm -hmm. what, is, what has that been like watching the, the Twins become what they are? And what was it like when the Twins kind of arrived on the scene as somebody who was what maybe thought of baseball on a more local level? Right. The first time I came into the Metrodome, 
And I know there's a lot of bad talk about the Metrodome, but that's what we had for a Major League Baseball field for many years. But the first time I got in there, Louie, and took a look at that, I was just in awe. Mm-hmm. I thought back to my pasture field. I thought back to all the fields I played on that they had no grass infield, and we had spent an hour before the game picking up stones off the infield or pulling weeds. You know, I thought about all of that, and then seeing this, I just couldn't believe it. It just blew me away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just I was totally 100% in awe, kind of like the guys are now at the new Viking Stadium. You know, but yeah. for me to see that a country boy coming down there and, and see what a professional field looks like, oh yeah. my lord, yeah. What a. Uh, what do you think? starting a field from scratch in the pasture what do you think that uh how has that sort of carried over to when you were in charge of a team in a field is that did it give you more appreciation for the, all absolutely. the work that went into it absolutely because we needed water for the guys there wasn't any water fountains down there so uh, i had a push cart okay and we had eight gallon milk cans so i'd fill those uh full four of them okay so we had water for the guys and then they had to sit on something so i got uh bales of hay down there, they, they sat on the, on the hay bales. Mm-hmm. And like I say, we had to uh, cut the lines. We had to, uh, 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 oh, I, I even put up markers in the outfield. I remember the center field fence was 280. And the right field fence was 210, the left field was 210. So it was pretty squared off. And yeah. at first, I was just perfect. Yeah. And there was only one guy there that went out of there. And it wasn't me. It was a big ox from uh, Eden Valley, Mr. Pete Werner. And uh, he went out of the center field fence. And God, we couldn't believe that. I mean, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, and then our equipment, uh, I had three brothers that, like I say, played for Watkins. So anytime there's a broken bat, they'd bring it home. We'd nail it. We'd tape it shut. I mean, they were 33, 34s, but that's all the kids swung. Yeah. And then for baseballs, anytime they had some older baseballs they weren't using, uh, we got them. But then I finally talked my dad into going to the gamble store on Sunday uh, before Sunday's game. If he could just buy me two new baseballs, they're 99 cents each. Well, in order to get those two new baseballs, I had to trap four golfers out, <laughs> out, out in the alfalfa field because then he gave me 50 cents apiece. So I do that. I trapped those darn golfers, and then I cut the tails off. when I got them. And then he went to the gamble store and bought those two baseballs for us. So, wow, you yeah. really worked for it. Oh, golly. <laughs> yes. Yes, we did. What is, it, what is, uh, is there a feeling you get when you watch uh, a catcher – with a major league catcher pick a ball out of the dirt and give it to the ump and they just throw it away after Can't one pitch. Is it? It. Absolutely. <laughs> that's one Can't that's two gophers. Right. right, yeah, right. A lot of trapping. You know, get those things wasn't easy. You know. You gotta dig the whole finder tunnel and oh golly, yeah, that wasn't easy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as you mentioned that it's tough when you watch somebody who's struggling to hit, and I think this is something that people talk about a lot when when somebody's a successful athlete at whatever sport it is, yeah. that it can be difficult Right. To coach to to right. explain like you know they the right. famous thing is like well Michael Jordan can't explain how to right you know because he's just like well just do it and right. You know, right what um not that you were the Michael Jordan of no, not, <laughs> not even close but no. you know you you mentioned that uh, you know when when you're good at something like hitting and it comes naturally what was the what was that transition like into coaching and what did you struggle with and or what were your biggest challenges in okay. communicating okay. that kind of right thing? the biggest thing I see coaches do is trying to change guys too much. I mean, look at some of the way these major leaguers swing. I mean, some of the stances that they have. It just blows me away how they can hit a baseball that way. Mm-hmm. Well, these kids on a high school amateur level, uh, all they need is a couple of things. Number one's confidence. They got all they can, they can hit the ball, and they have to work on it. They got, and my biggest thing is guys swing at the tee. I said Rod Carew, Tony Oliva, all these guys, they take 100, 200 pitches a day off the tee. And the best ball players I've had over the years will always ask, where's the tee? Where's the tee? Before the game. And, uh, and I tell them that. So a lot of it has to be on their own. They have to work at it to, to be good at it. But I just have to admit, you're born either hit or you're not. I mean, I, a lot of guys just have that God-given natural talent. Look at the major league, some of these guys, what they can do, you know. So, and here, too. But I have seen a lot of players blossom. I've seen kids that didn't do that well in high school. But as they kept on playing amateur ball, they progressed to be some really good ball players. So, but they worked at it. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I'm. Do you mind if I ask you about your accident, or at least what? Oh no, no, fine, go ahead. No, fine. I'm just curious. Um, so that was in 2001. 2003. Three. Okay, yeah, sorry. it happened on November 9th, uh, 3:45 in the afternoon. I suppose yeah. you tend to remember something. Oh like yes, yes, it was a cold day, mm-hmm. but uh, there again. Uh, I was very fortunate because uh, I was out there, and my son Chuck 
left his flashlight at his stand earlier in the morning. So he's not the go-getter uh, hunter uh, like I was, but he thought he better get that flashlight for in the morning or I'd get on his butt about that. You mm-hmm. know? And he was about, Louis, oh, probably a fourth of a mile away from me. And he couldn't really see me, but he knew where I was at. And then uh, we had walkie-talkies. And uh, we just put new batteries in, in that morning. And uh, he came out, and it was about uh, 2.30, 3 o'clock, he came out, and he said, he's going to come out for a while, go get his flashlight. And uh, he told me on the walkie-talkie, you know, so we talked back and forth. Mm-hmm. Well, when I fell, the walkie-talkie was hanging up there on a tree branch above my stand. Yeah. So about, I fell a quarter to four, and at 4.30, I heard him. And, oh, I was getting cold, and I was going into shock. Yeah. I was a paramedic on a, on a rescue squad for a number of years, so I knew what was happening to me. Yeah. And uh, I heard him say, how's it going, Dad? I couldn't answer, you know? I tried to yell, but he was so far away. Mm-hmm. And then he said, uh, oh, it took a little while. Well, five minutes later, he said, Dad, you seen anything over there? And I could see, I could tell by his voice, you know? And I said, come on, you know? And are you okay, you know? And I didn't answer. Well, all of a sudden, I heard the brush crack. It's not like a, a bulldozer coming through the brush. There was Chuck. Mm-hmm. He found me. Oof. And then one thing led to another. I had my old truck down there, and he took that and drove as fast as he could to his place. He uh, called 911, and uh, the ambulance made it down to where I was. There's an old road. They made it down there, and they had a heck of a time to get me out. I was all tangled up in brush and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the thing of it is, when I fell and I couldn't move my legs, I knew it wasn't good. Yeah. But as I, I could... I could move my head, my arms, and when I reached over, Louis, to my right, I hit something. And right where my wrist was, so about probably a foot and a half away, was a sawed-off steel post I just missed. Wow. It was, yeah. So, but anyway, uh, I got my first helicopter ride, and I was at the Litchfield Hospital. I'll never forget. The pilot said, uh, he, he called me, he, what did he call me? Uh, soldier. He says, okay, soldier boy, he said. Why he called me that? He said, we're going to make a really fast trip to Minneapolis. And he had his helmet on, and the nurse in there just held on to me. And I can remember her humming uh, Christmas tunes, Silent Night, and all mm-hmm. I can, I, because that uh, helicopter made so damn much noise. Yeah. Well, from Litchfield to uh, Hennepin County Medical Center, we made that in 12 minutes. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he told the family, he said, don't try and rush down there or get them down there and things. So uh, when I got down there, uh, I had, I believe, 11 doctors that were around me, asked me all kinds of questions. And then the next morning at 9 o'clock, I went into surgery at 9, I got out at quarter to 6. So I was in there a long time. Yeah, right, so. And then I was down there for about a month, and the, uh, every neurosurgeon I saw, every neurosurgeon said, never walk again. The injuries you have, you'll never walk, or you're gonna be in a wheelchair, and you're just gonna be able to move from the chair to the couch to your bed, that's it. So, boy, that wasn't, uh, we were, you know, you wanted to hear, but then I had an angel come and talk to me, and there, she was a social worker. She says, well, Bobby, you got bad news. I said, yeah, that's about as bad as you can get. Oh, no. She said, that's not. She said, uh, you can go about your life now two ways. You can sit at home, you can feel sorry for yourself, or you make the best of it. Well, I thought about that. Why well, I feel sorry for myself for, you know? So, got transferred out of the Hennepin uh, County Medical Center. Oh. There were times, though, when I wasn't going to, I think I was going to make it. I mm-hmm. couldn't get my air and stuff, and, and it just, oh, you, you can just tell things aren't going good. Yeah. And uh, then I'd feel like a cool breeze just blew over me. Just, just a cool breeze, and all of the uh, indicators above me, the nurse would look, well, look at that. Because he's breathing better, oxygen level's higher, you know. That happened several times. And I found out uh, each time it was a, there was a prayer service for me back at SPP. <laughs> That was pretty Wow, that's very cool. So then anyway, now I get to the St. Cloud Hospital, and of course can't move. And uh, after a couple of weeks up there, I have a nurse who's called Sister B. And Sister B came in one night, and she says, okay, Bob, we're going to massage your toes, and I want you to wiggle your toes. I said, Sister B, I've been asked a million times to wiggle those toes. I can't. She says, well, you just really, really try hard tonight. And she massaged my toes, Louie, and all of a sudden she just screamed. I thought, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, she said, you moved your big toe. I said, oh, I did. Yeah, she said, you yeah. did. And she called the doctors in and the therapist in, and they said, okay, here we go. You will walk. 
So, wow. Yeah, that was neat. Yeah. So. So that's still a process, then, yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm so happy about that. Getting yeah. around that walker is all right. You know. Yeah. Yep. But anyway, so here I am now, all banged up. It happened in November. But anyway, it got to be March, and now Chuck's playing for me yet. Uh, second oldest son. Well, he says, "What do you think, Dad?" I said, "Well, I think it's pretty over." You know. So he says, "Well, uh, come on, out to the field house." So I came down here, cars all, all the guys uniforms on in March. They said, we will do whatever we have to do to get you playing ball, you know, coaching ball again. So I was okay, and they did. They got me around all the parks and everything, and people are just wonderful. Pearl Lake, I could drive around the field with a car to get down to the dugout. Uh, when we had the state tournament, uh, wherever I go, uh, people say, okay, you park right here. I mean, that's no problem whatsoever, mm-hmm. you know, so very good. I'm curious how, um, how managing, not in like a logistical sense, but just right. being in a wheelchair, how is that right. a f- impacted the way you see the game or oh, okay. how has that changed? I, I, I see the game good and I got the guys at third base that always look at me. The only thing is the signs I give have got to be from the shoulders on up. <laughs> okay? Yeah. So I've got so I got to watch out so I don't rub my nose or, you know, <laughs> touch my ear or stop my nose because uh, yeah, they still take my catch looks at me for signs okay. and yeah. But it's all well, about, about the shoulder. How about in like uh, maybe a less literal sense? Like, uh, has it changed how you appreciate the game or how you look at it? Oh, in a, in a I appreciate it 100% more than yeah. I ever had before. Yes. Because this keeps me going. Mm-hmm. It gets me something to do, I look forward to, you know? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I guess I'm curious uh, you, were, you were inducted into the Hall of Fame last right. year, 2015. Right. right. Um, could you tell me what that experience was like, okay. how you found out about it, anything like that? Right. Well, it happened to be after a, a Friday night game we played down here, and we're all sitting around these picnic tables, and it was about 11 o'clock at night, and my son Chuck and the grandkids are down here yet. I thought, what, what are they hanging around here yet for, you know? <laughs> and then the game was over, and then the guy that really pushed to get me in was Bob Dockin, or a former player of mine, and a former student of mine, at St. Anthony's and Watkins. He's not a principal at Big Lake Senior High School. And I saw him come walking around the corner here, and he had a box of cigars. I thought, I think I made it, you know. And he came up to me, and uh, he, uh, yeah, he gave me a really big hug, and I said, I'm in, you know. So, yeah, it's something I wanted to do for a long, long time because I looked at all the guys that are in there and all the stuff that they did and stuff. And when I got to the uh, convention, when I got to nomination. Uh, up at uh, St. Cloud, it was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. There were about 45, 50 other guys that are in the Hall of Fame. Every single one of them made a point to come out to me sometime throughout the night and shake my hand and walk me in. So that was that was really good. Yeah, and it, I mean, obviously, it's it's got to be one of those experiences that starts you kind of thinking back to when you started. Right, the old pastor. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> yes, yes. I'll be coming along. Yeah, yeah, to see a field like this now. And a lot of fields in central Minnesota. I mean, just think of it, Louis. Here we sit. There's lights here and all around us. Uh, Painesville, Litchfield, Cold Spring, Watkins. We've got lights, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, can I talk a little bit about the old days about playing? I would love to hear about oh, Okay. <laughs> uh, when we first started, I'll start with the players. Our uniforms for every team was woolen, 100% woolen. They couldn't get any hotter, okay. So we had that. Then uh, the helmets, no such thing as ear flaps. Okay, everybody had their own helmet, and uh, you only had like three or four per team, because you couldn't afford to have one for everybody. So what you do is, when you came to bat, you tucked your, your baseball cap in your back pocket. And then when you get to the first base, uh, everybody had bat boys back then, so you threw your helmet to the bat boy, you put your, ba- your helmet, your regular hat back on. You want to run around the base with a helmet on, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's how that changed. No such thing as lights or electronic scoreboards. The scoreboards were all doing up by Pepsi or 7-Up or, or Mountain Dew or Coke. They're wooden uh, plywood scoreboards. Mm-hmm. And it was the bad boy's duty to put the score up after every half inning. Yeah. They had to do that. And then there's no such thing as grass infields. So what most teams did is whoever played the worst, whoever had the most errors or more strikeouts or if the pitcher just couldn't pitch, they'd have three guys. They had a man to drag. So they had to pull that drag around the infield while all the guys watched and drank beer. You yeah. know, you know, so that really helped out to have them work on their game a little bit. But, yeah, yeah, we, we would pick stones off the infield, pull uh, weeds and stuff like that. And no chain link fence. It was all uh, corn cribbing. So we put the corn cribbing up. Uh, and that would last until the bottom of the latch would break from balls hitting them. 
So then what we do is turn them upside down. <laughs> then we got three more years out of it. So that corn cribbing lasts about six years. Wow. And when we got new corn cribbing, oh, my God, that'd be like the best, biggest Christmas present you could possibly get because that was, that was a thing to have. Yeah. And no such thing as there was exhibition games, very rarely. And if a team had a college player, there was probably one college player in the whole league. So that's really changed a lot, you know, mm -hmm. these days. So, and then everybody was local. Everybody was local. And we had crowds like you wouldn't believe. It was, yeah, phenomenal crowds. Yeah. So with all these changes that have happened um, since you started playing baseball, started playing town ball and, and managing, um, despite all these changes and everything that's happened, um, you obviously still love it to your core. And I'm just curious oh, yes. to end what, what about it keeps you still in love okay. so much with town ball. I, I still love the game, and I know so many guys. I mean, I can go to a game and uh, every umpire before the game, uh, I've been around for years, come up and say hi and you know, ask how things are going and uh, see the other players on team and the fans also uh, come and say hi. Sometimes it's too much of a distraction. Uh, like when I play in Coast Guard, I can't get into the dugout. I have guys coming by, you know, hey, you want a beer here? You know, right in the middle of the game, yeah. you know, the fifth, sixth inning. You know? So, uh, yeah, we have that. But... Uh, uh, it's all for the better, though. I mean, like I say, all these, all these parks with lights down, beautiful parks, it's something to see. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Mr. G. I you really bet. appreciate it. You bet. Yeah. Okay. That is it for Episode 3 of Town Ball Talk. Thanks to our guests, Pat Schneider and Bertie Geislinger, and our sponsor, Stony Creek Dairy. Visit stonycreekdairy.com for more information. Please subscribe to the pod on iTunes or Google Play and leave us a review. Visit townballtalk.com where you can also find episodes. Uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at townballtalk, or shoot us an email at townballtalk at gmail.com with any suggestions for future guests. As a St. Cloud guy, I am aware that we're uh, pretty central Minnesota heavy in these first few episodes, and I'd like to branch out to some folks uh, in different parts of the state. So please keep sending suggestions. They are very much appreciated. Thanks for listening. This is Town Ball Talk, and I'm Louis Opitz.